Gospel of John, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word of God reads. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, which holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's bow our heads and go to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are the great bridegroom. Lord, that in heaven we have a wedding to look forward to where we are the bride, where you will take us to yourself to spend eternity with you. Father, where there will be no shortage, there will be nothing but joy and celebration because of what you've done. Father, this morning I, I pray for me that you would give me wisdom, that you would give me your words. Lord, that you would guard my tongue to speak only what would build up this church and what would apply to our lives. Lord, that you would guard me from saying anything foolish or unnecessary or that doesn't lift up your son and build up our lives. Father, I pray for our church that you would give us ears to hear that our hearts would be fertile ground to receive the, the seed of the gospel, to have our hearts watered by your word, Lord, that we'd be ready not just for the milk of the word, but, Lord, to digest some, some real meat this morning. Father, speak to your people. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Weddings are they're a big deal. They're a big deal all across the world. Uh, you know, young men will, will save up most of their lives in, in other countries to be able to buy a wife. I mean... We don't buy wives, per se, here in America, but in other countries, you know, they may save up. A, a wife might cost you a couple sheep and a few chickens, you know, and that might be years' worth of wages. You know, it cost me a, a pretty gold ring with, with a bunch of diamonds on it, and, and that took a while to save up. But weddings are a big, big deal. Uh, from the time that you're a child, people think about them. Little boys think about weddings, and they go, well, gross, I don't want that. Little girls think about weddings, though, and boy, they think about uh, the bridal gowns and the bridesmaids and what everything's going to look like. And then you get to the time of the wedding, and 
It's supposed to be this special, special time, right? I mean, usually your, your family and your friends will come in from, from all over the country. They'll be there early. You'll have parties before the parties. Everything's got to be perfect. And then you have this, this wedding. And if it was only about exchanging rings and starting a family, then you'd go down to the justice of the peace and you'd get that done. But that's not the picture that people have, right? A wedding ultimately is really a celebration. It's a celebration of the future. And that's what we have here. And what a shame it is if, if something goes wrong. Anybody have anything go wrong at their wedding? I know we did. Uh, my wife wanted to have this wedding outdoors. We're from Las Vegas. It's really hot there, and, and when it's not hot, it's really windy. You, you just... It's a little rough, but the Lord blessed us with a great location, made everything happen, beautiful weather, beautiful food. There was no wine, but there was tea and other things, and we didn't run out, and we didn't run out of the good food. We ran out of plates. <laughs> See, we bought enough plates. We actually brought, bought twice as many plates as we needed, but some of the plates couldn't be found, and other plates, people were inadvertently taking two. So next thing you know, people are going through the serving line uh, with the little hors d'oeuvre plates with a couple of them piled up on their arms. It felt like the wheels were going to fall off. So if you can think about something like that, you can understand what, what was happening here in this way. This is a celebration, and the, the wheels are falling off. Well, let's, let's get to our text this morning and, and what the Scripture says. The title of our sermon is, Jesus is Better. See, Jesus is the better bridegroom, much better than I was. His wedding is the better wedding, much more significant than this one was. They don't run out of things. It's much more important. We're going to look at three things this morning. And the first one is that Jesus is the better bridegroom. See, it says here that, that they were having this wedding and then they, they ran out of wine. Well, if it was just a few hours, they probably wouldn't have run out of wine. But weddings didn't last a few hours. I, I know that our reception did. It lasted about four hours and we scrammed out of there. To, you know, you got a honeymoon to get to. Their weddings and, and the party would last for up to seven days. You need a lot of wine. And they ran short. So, that, I mean, really, we're a few days in, maybe halfway. This party is just getting started and we're already in trouble. You think about it being a week-long affair, and in our weddings, they're not like that, but we do have bridal showers that happen ahead of time, right? And uh, you've got bachelor and bachelorette parties where you get the, the people who are really, really close to you and kind of in your age range. You've got a rehearsal dinner where everybody who's in the wedding and, and some of the distant, more distant relatives are there because you've got a dinner that's going to happen afterwards. Then you've got the wedding itself. And, and the celebration. And then maybe the next morning you might have a, a family breakfast and, and then ultimately a honeymoon. But overall, we have very little contact with most of our guests. It wasn't like that for them. And bridegrooms then, they had, they had obligations to provide for the entire party. It was absolutely that bridegroom's responsibility to have enough wine, to have enough food, just as at, at my wedding, when we ran out of plates, don't you know that I was digging for my keys ready to go to the store to get some? That yeah, would have been really, really inappropriate, but it was also really, really embarrassing to run out of plates. 
And I felt like it was my responsibility to take care of this. I mean, it's, it's my wedding. This is my wife, my family. That bridegroom had an obligation. So it was really embarrassing to run out of wine. But it was more than that. It was also legally troubling. See, a big part of a Jewish wedding was the contractual obligation. He had to provide for his wife. He had to provide a dowry. Uh, typically, even then, it would come down to rings, things, portable wealth. You know, that's where we get the idea of the rings that, that we have. And he had an obligation to provide plenty of food, plenty of wine. If he fell through, he's literally legally liable for that. And, and his wife's family could take him to court, and he could be in trouble. This is a big, big deal. We don't have anything like this quite today. I mean, the husband isn't in charge of paying for all this. Usually it's, it's the bride, right? We, we've mixed it up. And if you're a man, you're probably thinking, well, that's great. I don't have to pay for it right up until the time for your daughter to get married. And then it becomes a real expensive affair. But the groom's side will usually pay for the rehearsal dinner. The groom will, he'll pay for, you know, the, the honeymoon and, and for the wing, rings. We've got Mary. She does some interesting things here. Let's take a look at that scripture again. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding and his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Why is the mother of Jesus turning to him? Well, she's likely a close relative or a family friend. She has, probably has something to do with the catering and putting things on. And, and she's probably as surprised as anyone that they've run out of wine. But it's a great opportunity, right, for, for God to do some work here. So she turns to her son, Jesus, as though he was the bridegroom, as though it was his problem. We know that he wasn't. We know that there was a bridegroom, and it was his responsibility. So she turns to him with this problem. Have you ever had a friend turn to you, and and they've got a problem? Maybe they just ordered a, a, a meal, or you ate that meal that they ordered, and they go... I just, I, I, I think I left my wallet at home. And now you've got to take care of that bill. And so what, what does he say to her? You know, he says, uh, and Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? That'd be about my response too. My hour has not yet come. Notice he doesn't say, I'm not the bridegroom. What does this have to do with me? I'm not even in the wedding. We just, we just showed up. We're just here. I, I mean, I just got baptized and, and got these few disciples. No, he says, my time has not yet come. He doesn't say I'm not the bridegroom. He says, I'm not the bridegroom yet. My hour has not yet come. Because the fact is, his hour will come. Because he is the better bridegroom. The hour that Christ is, is looking to, that he's speaking of, is the hour of his death. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the price for our sins, he became our bridegroom. He didn't just take responsibility for some rings and for some wine. He took responsibility to buy us, all of us, as many as would believe. He didn't pay with rings. He didn't pay with dowry. He paid with his blood. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, we find this scripture. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died to buy us, the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, that when we reach heaven, there is a wedding feast. It's not a coincidence that the first of Christ's miracles is a picture of the first thing that we will encounter when we get to heaven. He has given us marriage as a shadow, a picture of our relationship to him. See, this is a celebration of a bride and a groom spending eternity together. Just as in heaven, there will be a celebration of the bride, the church of Christ, spending eternity with the Son of God. He is the better bridegroom. Amen? So, we do God and the gospel disservice. When we talk about heaven in some other kind of terms, see, heaven is all about Christ. It is all about God and his worship and the fact that we get to spend time with him, becoming one with him, knowing him, growing in him, even in heaven, delighting in his glory. You think about your honeymoon. You think about delighting in the glory of being with one another and what that's like and the joy, the ecstasy, the time, the closeness, the intimacy. It's nothing compared to Christ and what we'll experience with him. And yet, typically, it's going to be maybe the highlight of our lives. And it's a shadow. It's a shadow of what heaven is going to be like. So we do God and we do the gospel a disservice when we talk about heaven as though it's simply the absence of, of things that, that aren't good. Oh, there'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. They're not suffering anymore. Or when we talk about it as though we're just going to get there and we're going to do what we've always wanted to do. I'm just going to golf all day. I'm going to fish. I mean, the fish are going to be so big. I'm going to catch that, that giant fish that Jonah had. That's a great disservice to the gospel. That, what are you telling the world there? The, the, the best that God has to offer is that you get more of the stuff that you want now that you get to become a better you, that life's just a little bit better, that's not hope. That's not hope and that's not truth. And so we sell God short and we're not convincing anyone. We need to tell them about this marriage feast of Revelation 19. We need to tell them about, about this, this better bridegroom, about Jesus Christ, that that is what heaven is about. Through the picture of marriage, God focuses our attention on what a relationship with Christ is supposed to be. If it's a picture 
of marriage, and that's going to be perfection in heaven, we should be beginning that, that marriage, that relationship here on earth. You wouldn't say that you had a good marriage if you didn't spend time talking with each other, if you didn't have intimacy, if you didn't have closeness, if you didn't spend time doing what each one enjoyed doing. But many of us spend most of our time, if we spend time with God at all, we spend it doing what, what we enjoy doing. You'll hear people say, like, church for me is, is being out in a deer stand, or it's out on the lake on a boat, and that's where I talk to God. Well, so you're bringing Jesus along as you do what you want to do. But if, if all a couple ever did was to go fishing or hunting, wives, you might feel a little left out, unless you're a very particular kind of woman, Right? But I bet your marriages probably spend a little more time talking and a little more time shopping and a little more time planning baby names and, and things like that. That sounds fresh on my mind. Well, you know, we just had twins. So it's a picture of intimacy, though, and relationship. And so what does that look like in our life? If we're going to spend time talking to God, we spend time in prayer. The Bible says that we should pray without ceasing. In your lives, in your marriages, you might walk from room to room and the conversation naturally picks back up where you left. Or sometimes the fight picks back up wherever you left, right? But, but the conversation doesn't stop. You don't just press pause and I'll get back to you in a week when I get back to church. That's no marriage at all. We want to listen to God. We've got to go to his word. He speaks. His word is living and active. You won't hear from him unless you hear from him. It's also, if you're not married, this relationship to Christ is a picture of what our earthly marriages can be, what they should be. He is the better bridegroom, but that doesn't mean that we just get to treat our wives like trash. We just read that we are supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He died. He gave himself up for her. And he cleanses her with the washing of the water of the word. So is, is that a, a picture of our marriage men? That we love our, our wives so much that we would die for them? We would give up our will for them? We would sacrifice for them? Do we wash them with the water of the word? Do we take responsibility in our own homes to make sure that we're reading the word together? That we're praying together? That we're worshiping together? We should be. It's not too late. We can follow this better bridegroom and his example in all things. And if you're single and, and you're looking towards that, these are the things that we should be looking at in our marriage. This is the shape that it should have. Because this is pleasing to God. It's what he's shown us. Marriage isn't our invention. It's God's. Church, Christ is our head. He's our leader. Like Ephesians 5 says, we're to submit to him in all things, just as a wife is to submit to her husband. You know, we, uh, we don't do that so well. We don't pay attention to even what he says. We just kind of go off and, and we do what we want, even in the church. And, and that, that happens in some marriages. You know, wives will just go off and they'll, they'll buy whatever they want, or a husband will go off and they'll buy whatever they want, or... They'll make plans and they don't communicate to one another. They'll pretend that, that maybe it doesn't matter or that he won't care or, or that he didn't, he didn't say not to. But it dishonors our husbands. It makes a mess of our marriages. 
It doesn't show the world that God's had any change in our lives, that there's any difference between us and them. And it's the same in the church. Anybody can read the Bible. And the Bible is plain, and they can understand what God has to say about worship and how we should live and how the church should act. And so if they come in and they see us and we don't look like that, what do they see? Is this a place that they should want to be, that these are people that honor God and and take him seriously, that, that they're literally in a relationship with Christ? Jesus is our husband. That means that he bought us, not with a ring. It's the gospel. The fact is, we don't deserve him. Some of us deserve each other. You know, you, you, you see people, and man, you just see two rotten, miserable people, and you're like, those two deserve each other. Or you see two people, and man, they're just amazing, and you're like, golly, I wish I could have a marriage like that. They're just, they're so perfect together. And sometimes you see people and it's, you're just wondering, how did he get her? I mean, that woman is a saint. And so often you hear that woman is a saint, not because she has all the, you know, the fruit of the spirit and everything else, but you're thinking, how did she put up with him? How did he get her? Do you understand that all heaven will look at us and go, how did they get Christ? They don't deserve it. Those people are sinners. They're sinners. They're so ugly in what they do. They're so filthy in their sin. And they don't deserve it. He is holy. He is perfect. He can't even look on sin. But he loved them so much. What? That he died for them. And he cleansed them from their filth. The the word just said that, that they were washed with the water of his word. That he made us perfect and, and spotless. The bride of Christ. That whoever, whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You will either be the bride of Christ. The alternative is not to get left at the altar. The alternative is hell. It is one or the other. You will either spend eternity in perfection or eternity in damnation. And Jesus stands at the altar. He's already got the ring. He's already got the party planned. He's already invited all the guests. And you're invited. But you have to come. And you don't get to come. I'm I'm going to some other text right here for a second. You just have to bear with me. You don't get to come just in your filthy old garments. You have to put on the clean white ones that he provided for you. You have to believe. And you have to believe in what he said. Because he is the better bridegroom. Our second point this morning is about Jesus is better. His work is better than tradition. I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 6. Verses 6 through 9. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Let's pause right there. We have six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification. So these are are six, not seven. That's the number of God's perfect completion. There's literally something lacking. This isn't just symbolism here. This is divine symbolism here that there were six and not seven. Six stone jars 
about one foot in diameter and four feet tall is what they'd have to be. So imagine that, about one foot in diameter, a circular deal, and about yay tall. And you got six of them. Man, that's a lot of wine that Jesus just made, right? This is a serious party. And they were stoned. They were stoned because they believed that if they were made out of clay, those things could become unclean. Uh, disease could get to them, and then you'd, you'd basically just have to throw them out. But if they're made out of stone, then that wasn't the case. And remember, their purpose was not for the party. It was not for wine. They weren't set there expressly for Christ to come and make a miracle. They were there so that you could get clean. Because if you were a guest and you were coming to this party, before you entered in, you'd have to clean your hands, maybe clean your face. You've been traveling maybe many, many miles, many, many days. You've got a lot of dirt on you. You get yourself clean. Think about all that dirt falling in the bottom of the water to get you kind of nastier and messier. It's ironic that this is for purification, but the water that you're putting on you might be nastier than what was already on you. Imagine Jesus showing up on the third or fourth day. That water's been in there three or four days. You leave water out here for three or four days, what's in it? I mean, it's some nasty stuff, right? But they're, they're purifying themselves. By the way, God did not give them this commandment. This is, you won't find this anywhere. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You won't find it anywhere in the Bible. They made this up completely. So it's a ritual that they put on so that they could cleanse their hands. They could cleanse the utensils. I want to point you to something here. This is uh, from uh, Luke chapter 3. It says, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They hadn't gone to one of these kind of stone washing jars. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Jesus' people weren't doing it. Why are you not doing it? Why are you not holding to the tradition of the elders? It's higher even than the law of God. And when they had come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and copper pots and vessels and dining couches. And God lays out for them there that, that they would speak to Christ. And, and Christ says, you, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And that's what we see at this wedding feast. These pots are there simply for tradition, not because God ordained it. God ordained marriage, but he did not ordain these stone pots. So why are they there? These kinds of uh, traditions and, and rituals were counted as more important even than the commandments of God. They absolutely put them above them. Jesus is turning their traditions on their head. He's taking this water that they just washed their hands in, that they would never drink, and he's turning it into wine, superior to any wine that they've ever tasted. And, and there are only six jars, not seven, and, and by now they're, they're getting low, and Jesus says, fill them back up. He doesn't leave a drop. There's no indecision. There's no chance that somebody simply mixed some wine in. It's filled to the top with water, and Jesus turns it into wine. The very filth that they were hoping to wash away to make themselves pure, to make themselves right before God and worthy, Christ has turned into the perfection of wine. That's what he did on the cross. He doesn't say, clean yourself up. God didn't put Christ on the cross and then wash us with some water. The water, he didn't die on the cross and then we all got a big bath. No, he went up to the cross and God put our sin on him. 
And that is how we are washed. And there's a picture of that, that he turned this water, this filthy water, into wine, which symbolizes his blood, that we are washed in that because his work is better than tradition. God's perfect law was always better than their tradition. And the work of Christ is better than tradition. Will the world see tradition and religion, or will they say grace when they look at our relationship with God? Are we simply coming each Sunday for a good cleansing, a washing up for the week, or have we been washed in his blood? And so we honor him for that. How we answer that question really speaks to our relationship with God. Are we trying to do things in our own power? Are we doing things because we think we're supposed to, because we've already always been told that? Or is his work in our lives truly better? Because if we don't have anything better than water, if we don't have anything better than religion, we will not have a wedding feast. We will never taste that wine. And we must. We all know what it's like to, clean, to try to clean ourselves up, to try to clean up our mess. You know, I've got a little boy. He's a year and a half old. I cut him loose outside. Look out. If it's been raining, don't you know what he's going to look like? You know, he's only a year and a half, so he can't work the hose right now. But couldn't you imagine at two, at three years old, and he's muddy and he's ready to come in and he knows he's not supposed to, not when he's like that. So what's he going to do? He's going to try to get that hose maybe and turn it on and and get himself, and, and all he's going to do is get more mud everywhere. It's going to be down places. When he finally walks in the house, it's just going to be dripping out. And now instead of being caked to him, it's just going to flow all over the house. Or he's going to walk in, he's going to go into the bathroom, and he's going to try to turn everything on, and he's going to make a rip-roaring mess, and he's still going to be filthy. But what do you do when you have a little boy who's like that? You go get the hose. You turn it on, and you clean him. Because he can't clean himself. Neither can we clean ourselves. We must have Christ. His work is better than our tradition. It's better than our religion. One thing that we see more and more today is is people changing their religion even to suit the times. Just like the Jews changed their traditions to suit the times. God's word wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough. We need to add to it or take away from it to suit what's going on. We want people and society to be a certain way. We do that. So we tell people you can't drink because we don't want you to do that. Now, does the Bible say that? No, not like that. But, but it's not good. Or you can't dance or don't play cards. I mean, we're famous for this. But we also take away from his word. And so we say things like, well, God will he'll overlook homosexuality. He wasn't really serious about it. He'll overlook our hearts. It doesn't matter what we look at or we're impure. I mean, we, we've been washed by the word. We tell ourselves that. But the fact is, if we've been washed by the word, then our hearts won't allow us to continue in these sins. Right? So we compromise. As though God's word isn't sufficient. So we're going to add our part to it and take away from his. And what is that? It's religion. It's tradition. It's not his word. It's not true worship. It's not worshiping him in spirit and in truth. 
but his work is better than our tradition. God does not change. Church, we, we look to tradition and religion versus what God requires. We need to ask ourselves, what does God say in his Bible rather than what are other churches doing or even how have we done this in the past? He gives us direction. He tells us what he wants. He tells us who he is. He tells us how we should live. He tells us what his bride is supposed to look like. Amen? I mean, you have a vision of what a bride looks like, don't you? You weren't at my wedding, but you pretty much know that my wife was wearing a white dress. There's probably some kind of a veil, and she probably walked down the aisle with her father arm in arm, and I probably came down, and I probably received her, and we probably went up, and certain words were probably said. You have a real clear picture of that, right? And if she walked in in a red dress, ooh, you would probably have some questions, wouldn't you? picture of our relationship to Christ as the church. He has made things clear, but are we going to, are we going to abide by that? Or are we going to do what we want? And really that idea of religion is something that we'll get into next week. You know, Jesus, next week, Jesus is going and he's turning tables at the temple of God. Well, what is that about? That's, that's a tricky passage. All right. Our third point this morning, his blood is better than the law. Verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read those now. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They brought out the good stuff first while everybody could tell the difference, while their palate was still intact, you know? Um, Because... After a while, you, you get a little loopy when you've had enough wine. People who say that, oh, it was, you know, that wasn't the same kind of wine we had today. Well, why is it the Bible consistently warns us about getting drunk then off of this same wine? And then they use the lesser wine, the inferior wine, when people can't tell the difference. In the same way, the Jews believed that the law was best because it had been given first. And they weren't looking for anything better than that. They literally did not see Jesus coming. But Jesus and his blood is this better wine that was saved for last. God had given them the law only as a view to what was coming. It showed his perfection and his holiness, and it showed our imperfection and our sin, and that we couldn't and that we needed him. It was kind of like an hors d'oeuvre. Have you ever been to a fancy restaurant? I mean a real fancy restaurant. Fancy enough. They'll usually give you this, it's a spoon kind of a thing, and it's got something real frilly and fancy looking on it, and it's got a French word, they call it an amuse-bouche. It tastes great. It's amazing. It's supposed to be one bite that's telling you what's coming. This is a little sample of what's coming. When you're preparing a wedding, you have a tasting uh, uh, session where they'll bring out the different foods and have you taste them. Yes, I like this. No, I don't like that. They'll have you taste the different kind of cakes and pick and plan. The law was like that. It was a sample, a showing of what was coming. It was not the better stuff. It was the weaker, inferior wine. And Christ was coming. But they had filled up completely on what was inferior in the law. 
You know, if I were to prepare you a fancy dinner, but you spent the hour before the dinner eating the crackers and the cheese ball, you missed out, didn't you? And if you refuse to eat it because you're going, nope, this is really good cheese ball. This is all I want. Who cares about your filet mignon? You missed out. You know who does that? Kids do that, right? I did that kind of stuff when I was a kid. It's, it's immature. It's unwise. The law was a foretaste. It was not meant to satisfy. It can't satisfy. His blood is better than the law. Jesus uses wine to symbolize his blood, right? The blood of the new covenant, which is greater than the covenant of the law that was given at Sinai. They both were ratified by blood. But one is much greater than the other. One foreshadowed the other. But Jesus' blood is better. When you look to the law, it shows you only two things. It shows his perfection and it shows your imperfection. If you ever look at the law as a way to get to heaven, you missed it. See, this wedding is a picture of grace. They don't deserve, Jesus is not the bridegroom. He's not on the hook for this. He says to his wife, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you coming to me? I'm not responsible. It's my time. My hour has not yet come. Yet because of his grace, he works even now to save this wedding. Because it's a picture of what he will do for us in heaven. Wedding feast at Cana is a picture of grace. So we need to look at who he is. We need to look forward to that wedding. Because he is the better bridegroom. Everything about Christ is better. If your idea of heaven is not something so much better than on earth, something so much better than anything you've ever known, if you think this is good as it gets, and you don't realize it's just a shadow, you've fallen so short. And I, I worry. I worry for those who, who think that they've got it together, think that they don't need a better bridegroom. Because we do. We need the gospel. We need salvation. We need his wine, his blood. 